Section 9 of Essays, uh, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malone. Essays, Book 2 by Michel de Montaigne, translated by Charles Cotton. Of the Affection of Fathers to Their Children. Women are ever more addicted to cross their husbands. They lay hold with both hands on all occasions to contradict and oppose them. The first excuse serves for a plenary justification. I have seen one who robbed her husband wholesale. That, as she told her confessor, she might distribute the more liberal alms. Let who will trust to that religious dispensation. No management of affairs seems to them of sufficient dignity if proceeding from the husband's assent. They must usurp it either by insolence or cunning, and always injuriously, or else it has not the grace and authority they desire. When, as in the case I am speaking of, tis against a poor old man, and for the children, then they make use of this title to serve their passion with glory, and as for a common service, easily cabal and combine against his government and dominion. If they be males grown up in full and flourishing health, they presently corrupt, either by force or favor, steward, receivers, and all the rout such as have neither wife nor son, do not so easily fall into this misfortune, but withal more cruelly and unworthily. Cato the Elder in his time said, So many servants, so many enemies. Consider then whether, according to the vast difference between the purity of the age he lived in, and the corruption of this of ours, he does not seem to show us that wife, son, and servant are so many enemies to us. Tis well for old age that it is always accompanied by want of observation, ignorance, and a proneness to being deceived. For should we see how we are used and would not acquiesce, what would become of us? especially in such an age as this, where the very judges who are to determine our controversies are usually partisans to the young and interested in that cause. In case the discovery of this cheating escape me, I cannot at least fail to discern that I am very fit to be cheated, and can a man ever enough exalt the value of a friend in comparison with these civil ties? the very image of it which I see in beasts, so pure and uncorrupted. How religiously do I respect it! If others deceive me, yet do I not at least deceive myself in thinking I am able to defend myself from them, or in cudgeling my brains to make myself so? I protect myself from such treasons in my own bosom not by an unquiet and tumultuous curiosity, but rather by diversion and resolution. When I hear talk of anyone's condition, I never trouble myself to think of him. I presently, 
turn my eyes upon myself to see in what condition I am. Whatever concerns another relates to me. The accident that has befallen him gives me caution and rouses me to turn my defense that way. We every day and every hour say things of another that we might properly say of ourselves, could we but apply our observation to our own concerns, as well as extend it to others. And several authors have in this manner prejudiced their own cause by running headlong upon those they attack, and darting those shafts against their enemies, that are more properly and with greater advantage to be turned upon themselves. The late Marshal de Montluc, having lost his son who died in the island of Madeira, in truth a very worthy gentleman and of great expectation, did to me, amongst his other regrets, very much insist upon what a sorrow and heart-breaking it was that he had never made himself familiar with him. And by that humor of paternal gravity and grimace, to have lost the opportunity of having an insight into and of well-knowing his son, as also of letting him know the extreme affection he had for him and the worthy opinion he had of his virtue. That poor boy, said he, never saw in me other than a stern and disdainful countenance and has gone in a belief that I neither knew how to love him nor esteem him according to his desert. For whom did I reserve the discovery of that singular affection I had for him in my soul? Was it not he himself who ought to have had all the pleasure of it and all the obligation? I constrained and racked myself to put on and maintain this vain disguise and have by that means deprived myself of the pleasure of his conversation, and, I doubt in some measure, his affection, which could not but be very cold to me, having never other from me than austerity, nor felt other than a tyrannical manner of proceeding. Madame de Sévigny tells us that she never read this passage, without tears in her eyes. "'My God!' she exclaims. "'How full is this book of good sense!' Editor. I find this complaint to be rational and rightly apprehended, for as I myself know by too certain experience, there is no so sweet consolation in the loss of friends as the conscience of having had no reserve or secret for them and to have had with them a perfect and entire communication. Oh, my friend, la boise. Am I the better for being sensible of this, or am I the worse? I am, doubtless, much the better. I am consoled and honored in the sorrow for his death. Is it not a pious and pleasing office of my life to be always upon my friend's obsequies? Can there be any joy equal to this privation? I open myself to my family as much as I can, and very willingly let them know the state of my opinion and good will towards them, 
as I do to everybody else. I make haste to bring out and present myself to them, for I will not have them mistaken in me in anything. Amongst other particular customs of our ancient Gauls, this, as Caesar reports, De Ballo Gallico 6, 8, was one that the sons never presented themselves before their fathers, nor durst ever appear in their company in public, till they began to bear arms, as if they would intimate by this that it was also time for their fathers to receive them into their familiarity and acquaintance. I have observed yet another sort of indiscretion in fathers of my time, that, not contented with having deprived their children during their own lives of the share they naturally ought to have had in their fortunes, they afterwards leave to their wives the same authority over their estates, and liberty to dispose of them according to their own fancy. And I have known a certain lord, one of the principal officers of the crown, who having in reversion above fifty thousand crowns yearly revenue, died necessitous and overwhelmed with debt at above fifty years of age, his mother in her extremest decrepitude being yet in possession of all his property by the will of his father, who had, for his part, lived till near fourscore years old. This appears to be by no means reasonable, and therefore I think it of very little advantage to a man whose affairs are well enough to seek a wife who encumbers his estate with a very great fortune. There is no sort of foreign debt that brings more ruin to families than this. My predecessors have ever been aware of that danger and provided against it, and so have I. But those who dissuade us from which wives for fear they should be less tractable and kind, are out in their advice to make a man lose a real commodity for so frivolous a conjecture. It costs an unreasonable woman no more to pass over one reason than another. They cherish themselves most where they are most wrong. Injustice allures them, as the honor of their virtuous actions does the good and the more riches they bring with them, they are so much the more good-natured. As women who are handsome are all the more inclined and proud to be chaste. Tis reasonable to leave the administration of affairs to the mothers till the children are old enough, according to law, to manage them. But the father has brought them up very ill if he cannot hope that when they come to maturity, they will have more wisdom and ability in the management of affairs than his wife, considering the ordinary weakness of the sex. It were, notwithstanding, to say the truth, more against nature to make the mothers depend upon the discretion of their children. They ought to be plentifully provided for, to maintain themselves according to their quality and age by reason that necessity and indigence are much more unbecoming and insupportable to them than to men. The son should rather be cut short than the mother. In general, the most judicious distribution of our goods when we come to die is, in my opinion, 
to let them be distributed according to the custom of the country. The laws have considered the matter better than we know how to do, and tis wiser to let them fail in their appointment than rashly to run the hazard of miscarrying in ours. Nor are the goods properly ours, since by civil prescription, and without us, they are all destined to certain successes. And although we have some liberty beyond that, yet I think we ought not, without great and manifest cause, to take away that from one which his fortune has allotted him, and to which the public equity gives him title, and that it is against reason to abuse this liberty in making it serve our own frivolous and private fancies. My destiny has been kind to me in not presenting me with occasions to tempt me and divert my affection from the common and legitimate institution. I see many with whom tis time lost to employ a long exercise of good offices. A word ill-taken obliterates ten years' merit. He is happy who is in a position to oil their good will at this last passage. The last action carries it, not the best and most frequent offices, but the most recent and present do the work. These are people that play with their wills as with apples or rods to gratify or chastise every action of those who pretend to an interest in their care. Tis a thing of too great weight and consequence to be so tumbled and tossed and altered every moment, and wherein the wise determine once and for all, having above all things regard to reason and the public observance. We lay these masculine substitutions too much to heart, proposing a ridiculous eternity to our names. We are, moreover, too superstitious in vain conjectures as to the future, that we derive from the words and actions of children. Peradventure they might have done me an injustice in dispossessing me of my right, for having been the most dull and heavy, the most slow and unwilling at my book, not of all my brothers only, but of all the boys in the whole province, whether about learning my lesson or about any bodily exercise. Tis a folly to make an election out of the ordinary course upon the credit of these divinations wherein we are so often deceived. If the ordinary rule of descent were to be violated and the destinies corrected in the choice they have made of our errors, one might more plausibly do it upon the account of some remarkable and enormous personal deformity, a permanent and incorrigible defect, and in the opinion of us French, who are great admirers of beauty, an important prejudice." The pleasant dialogue between Plato's legislator and his citizens will be an ornament to this place. What? said they, feeling themselves about to die. May we not dispose of our own to whom we please? God, what cruelty that it shall not be lawful for us, according as we have been served and attended in our sickness, in our old age, in our affairs, to give more or less to those whom we have found most diligent about us, at our own fancy and discretion. 
to which the legislator answers thus. My friends, who are now, without question, very soon to die, it is hard for you, in the condition you are, either to know yourselves or what is yours, according to the Delphic inscription. I, who make the laws, am of opinion that you neither are yourselves nor your own, nor is that yours of which you are possessed. Both your goods and you belong to your families, as well those past as those to come. But further, both your family and goods much more appertain to the public. Wherefore, lest any flatterer in your old age, or in your sickness, or any passion of your own, should unseasonably prevail with you to make an unjust will, I shall take care to prevent that inconvenience. But, having respect both to the universal interests of the city, and that of your particular family, I shall establish laws, and make it by good reasons appear that private convenience ought to give place to the common benefit. Go then cheerfully, where human necessity calls you. It is for me, who regard no more than one thing than the other, and who, as much as in me lies, am provident of the public interest, to have a care as to what you leave behind you. To return to my subject, it appears to me that women are very rarely born to whom the prerogative over men, the maternal and natural accepted, is in any sort due, unless it be for the punishment of such, as in some amorous fever have voluntarily submitted themselves to them. But that in no way concerns the old ones, of whom we are now speaking. This consideration it is which has made us so willingly to enact and give force to that law, which was never yet seen by any one, by which women are excluded the succession to our crown. And there is hardly a government in the world where it is not pleaded, as it is here, by the probability of reason that authorizes it, though fortune has given it more credit in some places than others. Tis dangerous to leave the disposal of our succession to their judgment, according to the choice they shall make of children, which is often fantastic and unjust. For the irregular appetites and depraved tastes they have during the time of their being with child, they have at all other times in the mind." We commonly see them fond of the most weak, rickety, and deformed children, or of those, if they have such, as are still hanging at the breast. For, not having sufficient force of reason to choose and embrace that which is most worthy, they the more willingly suffer themselves to be carried away where the impressions of nature are most alone." like animals that know their young no longer than they give them suck. As to the rest, it is easy by experience to be discerned that this natural affection to which we give so great authority has but very weak roots. For our very little profit, we every day tear their own children out of the mother's arms and make them take ours in their room. We make them abandon their own to some pitiful nurse, 
to whom we disdain to commit ours, or to some she-goat, forbidding them not only to give them suck, what danger soever they run thereby, but moreover to take any manner of care of them, that they may wholly be occupied with the care of and attendance upon ours. And we see in most of them an adulterate affection, more vehement than the natural, begotten by custom toward the foster-children and a greater solicitude for the preservation of those they have taken charge of than of their own. And that which I was saying of goats was, upon this account, that it is ordinary all about where I live to see the countrywomen, when they want milk of their own for their children, to call goats to their assistance. And I have at this hour two men-servants that never sucked women's milk more than eight days after they were born. These goats are immediately taught to come to suckle the little children, know their voices when they cry, and come running to them. If any other than this foster-child be presented to them, they refuse to let it suck, and the child in like manner will refuse to suck another goat. I saw one the other day from whom they had taken away the goat that used to nourish it, by reason the father had only borrowed it of a neighbor. The child would not touch any other they could bring, and died, doubtless of hunger. Beasts as easily alter and corrupt their natural affection as we. I believe that in what Herodotus relates of a certain district of Libya, there are many mistakes. He says that the women are there in common, but that the child, so soon as it can go, finds him out in the crowd for his father, to whom he is first led by his natural inclination. Now, to consider this simple reason for loving our children, that we have begot them, therefore calling them our second selves, it appears, methinks, that there is another kind of production proceeding from us, that is of no less recommendation. For that which we engender by the soul, the issue of our understanding, courage, and abilities, springs from nobler parts than those of the body, and that are much more our own. We are both father and mother in this generation. These cost us a great deal more, and bring us more honor, if they have anything of good in them. For the value of our other children is much more theirs than ours, the share we have in them is very little. But of these, all the beauty, all the grace and value are ours. And also, they more vividly represent us than the others. Plato adds that these are immortal children that immortalize and deify their fathers, as Lycurgus, Solon, Minos. Now, histories being full of examples of the common affection of fathers to their children, it seems not altogether improper to introduce some few of this other kind. Heliodorus, that good bishop of Trica, rather chose to lose the dignity, profit, and devotion of so venerable a prelacy than to lose his daughter, a daughter that continues to this day very grateful and comely, but peradventure a little too curiously and wantonly tricked, 
and too amorous for an ecclesiastical and sacerdotal daughter. There was one Labienus at Rome, a man of great worth and authority, and amongst other qualities, excellent in all sorts of literature, who was, as I take it, the son of that great Labienus, the chief of Caesar's captains in the wars of Gaul, and who afterwards, siding with Pompey the Great, so valiantly maintained his cause till he was by Caesar defeated in Spain. This Labienus, of whom I am now speaking, had several enemies, envious of his good qualities, and, tis likely, the courtiers and minions of the emperors of his time who were very angry at his freedom and the paternal humor which he yet retained against tyranny, with which, it is to be supposed, he had tinctured his books and writings. His adversaries prosecuted several pieces he had published before the magistrates at Rome, and prevailed so far against him as to have them condemned to the fire. It was in him that this new example of punishment was begun, which was afterwards continued against others at Rome, to punish even writing and studies with death. There would not be means and matter enough of cruelty did we not mix with them things that nature has exempted from all sense and suffering, as reputation and the products of the mind and did we not communicate corporal punishments to the teachings and monuments of the muses? Now, Labienus could not suffer this loss, nor survive these his so dear issue, and therefore caused himself to be conveyed and shut up alive in the monument of his ancestors, where he made shift to kill and bury himself at once. Tis hard to show a more vehement paternal affection than this, Cassius Severus, a man of great eloquence and his very intimate friend, seeing his books burned, cried out that by the same sentence they should as well condemn him to the fire too, seeing that he had carried in his memory all that they contained. The like accident befell Cremutius Cordus, who being accused of having in his books commended Brutus and Cassius, that dirty, servile, and corrupt senate, worthy a worse master than Tiberius, condemned his writings to the flame. He was willing to bear them company, and killed himself with fasting. The good Lucan, being condemned by that rascal Nero at the last gasp of his life, when the greater part of his blood was already spent through the veins of his arms, which he had caused his physician to open to make him die, and when the cold had seized upon all his extremities and began to approach his vital parts, the last thing he had in his memory was some of the verses of his Battle of Pharsalia, which he recited, dying with them in his mouth. What was this but taking a tender and paternal leave of his children? in imitation of the valedictions and embraces wherewith we part from ours when we come to die, and an effect of that natural inclination that suggests to our remembrance in this extremity those things which are dearest to us during the time of our life. Can we believe that Epicurus, who, as he says himself, 
dying of the intolerable pain of the stone, had all his consolation in the beauty of the doctrine he left behind him, could have received the same satisfaction from many children, though never so well conditioned and brought up, had he had them, as he did from the production of so many rich writings, or that, had it been in his choice to have left behind him a deformed and untoward child, or a foolish and ridiculous book, he, or any other man of his understanding, would not rather have chosen to have run the first misfortune than the other. It had been, for example, peradventure, an impiety in St. Augustine, if, on the one hand, it had been proposed to him to bury his writings, from which religion has received so great fruit, or, on the other, to bury his children, had he had them, had he not rather chosen to bury his children. And I know not whether I had not much rather have begot a very beautiful one through society with the muses than by lying with my wife. To this, such as it is, what I give it I give absolutely and irrevocably, as men do to their bodily children. That little I have done for it is no more at my own disposal. It may know many things that are gone from me, and from me hold that which I have not retained, and which, as well as a stranger, I should borrow thence should I stand in need. If I am wiser than my book, it is richer than I. There are few men addicted to poetry who would not much be prouder to be the father to the Aeneid than to the handsomest youth of Rome, and who would not much better bear the loss of the one than the other. For according to Aristotle, the poet, of all artificers, is the fondest of his work. Tis hard to believe that Epimonidas, who boasted that in lieu of all posterity he left two daughters behind him that would one day do their father honor, meaning the two victories he obtained over the Lacedaemonians, would willingly have consented to exchange these for the most beautiful creatures of all Greece, or that Alexander or Caesar ever wished to be deprived of the grandeur of their glorious exploits in war, for the convenience of children and heirs, how perfect and accomplished soever. Nay, I make a great question whether Phidias or any other excellent sculptor would be so solicitous of the preservation and continuance of his natural children as he would be of a rare statue, which with long labor and study he had perfected according to art. And to those furious and irregular passions that have sometimes inflamed fathers towards their own daughters and mothers towards their own sons, the like is also found in this other sort of parentage. Witness what is related of Pygmalion, who, having made the statue of a woman of singular beauty, fell so passionately in love with this work of art that the gods in favor of his passion inspired it with light. Ten tantum molescitabur posito quae rigore subsitit digitis. The ivory grows soft under his touch and yields to his fingers. 
Ovid, Metamorphoses, 10, 238. End of section 9. Reading by Malone.